we have considered over the past several weeks what discipleship costs us. And I know, listen, I know that the, the resurrection story stands alone. And, and hear this, it is enough. It is enough. We don't need to add anything to it. It is enough. It is sufficient. It is enough. However, in light of where we've been and what we've considered and, and what does it mean to follow Jesus and what does following Jesus cost us, that's been our journey through Lent. And this morning we find that the resurrection does cost us something. And it is perhaps the one thing, one of the greatest gifts that we can offer to the world around us. We've talked about the fact that, that the resurrection uh, or, or life following Jesus does, we are invited to count the cost. Uh, we're invited to consider the ways that it costs us our busyness. We are invited to consider the ways that it costs us our understanding of, of grace, uh, that, that we are challenged to consider um, you know, the, what, it, what it costs us in the way that we view and use our treasure that God has given us. Um, it costs us our pride, we talked about last week. But this morning, we're invited to consider the fact that, that the resurrection costs us our hopelessness. It doesn't mean that things won't be hard. It doesn't mean that you won't walk through difficult things. It doesn't mean that this morning, if you say yes or yes again to life with Jesus made possible by his, his, uh, his, the work he did on the cross, and most importantly, the resurrection, his walking out of the tomb, all things being equal this morning some 2,000 years ago, it doesn't mean that if you say yes to that, that you won't face trial, that you won't face trouble. And if you have been told that, that is, that is simply not true. And on behalf of, of the church and whoever told you that, please forgive me. Forgive us. Because Jesus says nothing of the sort. In fact, he says, life spent following me is going to be difficult. You're going to face hard times. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be misunderstood. And yet, one of the greatest things that we have to offer the world around us is the fact that we can walk through difficult times. We can walk through extreme sadness. We can walk through unbelievable grief and trial. And even in the midst of it, say, my hope exists because it is rooted in something beyond my present circumstances. It is rooted in something that is far more powerful than, than the way that my circumstances are making me feel right now. And so the fact that, that we are invited to consider that the resurrection costs us our hopelessness is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to the world around us. And it's one of the greatest testimonies that we have as people who follow Jesus. That when the world looks upon us and says, God, you, what you are going through right now, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. How is it that you have such hope in the midst of it? And, and we get to say, yeah, it's incredibly hard. That like, I don't know if I can keep my head above water, but what I do know is that there, there is one who has walked through unbelievable grief and pain and trial on my behalf, who, was, who, who gave his life to, to cover my brokenness and my sinfulness, who was laid in a tomb, and who on the third day walked out of that tomb very much alive, defeating death and putting it in its place. And therefore, whatever I am walking through, even if it ends in the end of my life, I know that the end of my life, it is just a, a turning of the page in which I get to stand forever before the throne of Jesus. That it changes the way that we look at our, at our, our circumstances so that we as a people might have hope in the midst of it. Let's look at uh, what I believe is um, one of the resurrection accounts, one of the resurrection stories that, that really 
invites us perhaps more than, than any other to step into the story and, and to, to feel what these uh, followers of Jesus were feeling. This is Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. If you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand. Now that same day, this is again Luke's gospel, that same day, what is that same day? Resurrection day, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. That same day, two of them, that's two of Jesus' followers, not the 11 that were remaining, but two followers of his, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just, uh, and found it, uh, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the resurrection word of God for us, the resurrection people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are some walks in our lives that feel longer than others. And, and I don't simply mean because of the terrain or because of the, the physical distance of the walk, although if you are a person who has spent time, um, you, you know, backpacking, then, then you're like, no, it is because of the terrain. It is absolutely because of the distance before me that this walk feels long. But that's not the only thing that makes a walk like that feel long. It is the burden that you are carrying. And we can have walks in our lives that feel incredibly long not because we are backpacking, not because we are hiking, but because what we are walking through in a given season of life, the burden in that season is so unbelievably heavy that it, be, it begins to affect us. 
And, and that's, yes, the distance was seven miles. And listen, seven miles is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, you, you walk seven miles, you begin to feel it in your feet and your ankles and your calves. But what made this walk so burdensome for, for these disciples, for Cleopas and his companion, was the, the burden, the weight that they were carrying as they made this journey together. The confusion, the doubt, the unknown questions now that surrounded the fact that there was an empty tomb. If you have experienced loss in your life, if you have experienced loss of relationship, if you have experienced loss of a loved one, if you have experienced loss of a career or loss of the thing that you just felt like, God, so this is the thing that gave me meaning and purpose in my life. If you've experienced that, then, then we, we, have this, we, we have this tendency to begin to avoid places that remind us of that person or remind us of that thing. We could look at this and say, well, hold on. If the 11 are still in Jerusalem, and if the women are still in Jerusalem, and if other followers are still in Jerusalem, why are Cleopas and his companion not still there? Why is it that they left? Why are they making the seven-mile journey to Emmaus? Perhaps there was business to be done there, but it seems like based on their conversation, there was nothing more important for them right now than trying to figure out and, and deal with and navigate and unpack what they had just experienced over the, the course of these few days. Perhaps it is that they are trying simply to avoid, to leave. I, you know what? I can't. It's probably best if we just get out of Jerusalem because all it's going to do is remind us of what we had hoped in, remind us of, of Jesus and, and how our hearts have begun to believe that maybe he was the Messiah and, and now he's gone and, and now he's gone and we don't even know where he is, like someone took the body, now he's, now he's gone and we have no hope ever of, of paying our respects to him again. And there are too many things in Jerusalem, too many Places that we could go where we would remember what he said or we would remember what he did in that place or, or, or we would remember that, that just a week ago he, he rode into the city in triumph and to the shout of Hosanna, Hosanna and, and maybe they were a part of that crowd and they're like, yeah, we just, it's too much. We just need to leave. We need to avoid that because it, it just is stirring up too much in us and, and if you are a person who has tried to do that, then then maybe you, you know that you can't ever truly escape that. The reminders, the grief, the weight of, of that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, after he lost his, his wife, Joy, thought that, that his grief might be uh, less intense if he intentionally avoided places that he and Joy would, would visit together. So he quit going to the same market. He quit visiting the same um, places to eat. He, he, he quit uh, walking down the same streets. He chose different streets because he, he just wanted to avoid any memory of her. It was too much. And yet, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, I found out that grief is like the sky above. It is over everything. Like I can't, I, I couldn't avoid it. It, it covers everything. And, and that's where these followers of Jesus, these disciples find themselves, that even on the road it is clear that the leaving of Jerusalem has not accomplished, at this point anyway, the thing that they hoped it would accomplish. 
Because as they are walking along, they are talking about everything that had happened. If they're, if they're trying truly to avoid it, then, then they don't even want to talk about it. I mean, maybe you've been in that place where you are hurting deeply over something and someone comes to you and, and just well-meaning and says, hey, you know, can, do you want to talk about this? And you're, you just can't because you're not even afraid that you could, you're not even uh, sure that you could make it through the conversation. Or if you enter into the conversation, what is it going to stir up in you and how is it going to make you feel? And so the leaving of Jerusalem did not for them put behind them the, the, the weight and the hopelessness and the grief that they were feeling as they talked and discussed these things with each other. However, Jesus himself came and walked along with them. Friends, we could stop there. In the place of your grief, in the place of your doubt, in the place of your hopelessness, that is the place where Jesus is willing to meet you, to come and walk with you. You are never alone. Never alone. No matter how dark it may seem, no matter how hopeless it may seem, Jesus is always willing to enter into that and to walk with you. And so we see that very thing happen. And I love, I love this. And I mean, I just, there are times when you just got to think, man, is Jesus is messing with them, right? I mean, just in his interaction with the disciples over the three years of his ministry, and, and even we don't know what Jesus was like as a, you know, as a brother to his earthly brothers. And like, did he just mess with, just, did he just mess with them? Like he, he they could never win at hide and seek because he always knew where they were. Jesus comes up and walks along with them and says, hey, what are you talking about? What else is there to talk about? Like, what, have you, are you just a visitor to Jerusalem that you don't know the things that have happened? Like, have you, been, have you just come out from under a rock? But Jesus was like, well, actually, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but, he, but he probes. What things? And, and that's one of the things that's so, I, I think, inviting about the way that Luke captures this story, about the way that Luke writes this gospel and then, you know, turn the page over to Acts and the way that he, he records for us the Acts of the Apostles and the work of the Holy Spirit through them as the church and this message just explodes into the world. Like, th there are, yes, you know, men in, in dazzling white clothes at the tomb. If you were to go back uh, earlier in this chapter... The women uh, went early in the morning, uh, took the spices they'd prepared and went to the tomb. And they didn't know how they were going to navigate the stone, but they felt like they needed to go and to, to, um, and, and to pay homage and, and to minister to even the, the body of Jesus. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This is what they didn't expect. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, also unexpected, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, a question, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? And then the question that Jesus asks, what things? What things have happened? What things are you talking about? What things have you in such a state of hopelessness that you would leave the place where all of this took place? What things? 
You see, one of the things that Luke is doing here and that Luke does in, in the recording of the events of the resurrection is he, he, there are these probing questions. Why are you looking for life in dead places? Well, that'll preach to us, won't it? Why do you look for life in places that you were never meant to be? Why do you look for life in things that are dead end to you? Why do you look for life in things that, things that were never meant to fulfill you? Why do you look for life in dead places? What things? What things have you so turned around? What things have you walking under the weight of such grief and hopelessness? Jesus is asking, not because Jesus doesn't know. Jesus knows. He knows exactly where they are. He knew where to meet them in their grief and their hopelessness. He knows what it is that has them so tangled up. It's not because Jesus doesn't know. It's because Jesus wants them to know. He wants them to unpack it with him. He wants to begin the work of untangling their hearts, untangling their hearts from the thing that has them in such a place of hopelessness so that he can then put it back together, rooted in something that is worth hoping in. What if Jesus came to you and said, hey, what things? Let's talk about this. What, what things? What things have you so dismayed? What things have you in such a place of hopelessness? What things have you convinced that there is nothing in your life beyond the difficulty that you are feeling right now? What things? Not because Jesus doesn't know, but because Jesus is inviting you to know. Because he wants to do the work of untangling your heart from these things that have turned you so upside down that you believe that there is nothing beyond where you are right now. And, and not that those things, in, any of them are necessarily inherently bad. If you are broken over a relationship, listen, we were created for a relationship. If it's over the loss of, of a loved one, that, that absolutely is painful. We see the pain that it causes Jesus at the death of Lazarus. Like we should feel those things. That's not wrong. Emotion for us is a gift from God. But have we so, have, have we placed those things and, and people in our lives in such a place of importance that when that doesn't work out and when that thing begins to fall apart, it affects everything? It changes our outlook on everything about our lives. That's what Jesus wants to untangle. Because none of those things were ever meant to bear up under the weight that we place upon them to fulfill us and to give us meaning and to give us purpose and to give us hope. So Jesus asked them, what things? They stood still, like as if this question just stopped them in their tracks. Or maybe it's just the, the weight of what they were carrying. They stood still, their faces down. One of them named Cleophas asked him, here's the question, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these things? Again, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. That's kind of true about who Jesus is, only he was more than a prophet. But they go on. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But then this is it. This is verse 21. But we had hoped. 
but we had hoped. Do you notice that their messianic hope, their hope of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do now all of a sudden has become past tense? It has become something that is no longer possible because it was left in a tomb. It hung on a cross, was left in a tomb. Now the tomb is empty and they have no idea where Jesus is. So their, their hope for a Messiah, their hope for one who would bring healing, and, or their hope for the, for the one who would bring rescue, and in their minds, political freedom. All of those hopes, everything that had them stirred up and believing that there was a different future for them as far as they were concerned was no longer a possibility. We had hoped. What happens when we allow our hope to become something that only exists in the past? We rob ourselves of the opportunity to believe that there is a future beyond what we are currently living in. And Jesus comes to untangle that for them. You had hoped. Your messianic hope was now a thing that's in the past. Because your, your hope and your, your, your belief in me, you weren't quite there. Your understanding of who I am, you weren't quite there. You, you, you were close, but you hadn't quite gotten there yet. You were short-sighted in your understanding of who I am, is what he will go on to say to them. You had an idea. We could say you had a box that you placed me in. And in that box, things worked out a certain way. In that box, my coming meant political freedom from Rome. In that box meant that you would become a free people once again. But, but what happens, you know, what do we do with freedom? What did God's people historically do with freedom? They just walked back into rebellion. And yet they believed this is the Messiah. He's the one that's going to come and lead us to political freedom. We'd be a free people. And Jesus has to untangle that for them. Your hope is short-sighted. How, how many of us are, are in a place or have been in places where we just feel like things are hopeless and, and it's not because there's no reason to hope, but it's, it's because our hope is short-sighted. It's because we, we, we haven't gone all in on what Jesus invites us to in life with him. He, he's still maybe kind of vending machine Jesus. Like if I pray, if I worship, if I have my quiet time and then I ask you for some things, you're going to come through for me. What if his plan for you is not that you would have those things? What if his plan for you is something entirely different? Then what does hope look like to you? Jesus is willing to walk with us and to untangle for us the things that we place our hope in. Because sometimes we're just not, we're not giving him enough credit. Was he a prophet? Was he a mouthpiece for God? Yes. I mean, he's the, the, the way that Jesus spoke truth into the environment is beautifully captured in the Gospels. But he was so much more. So then Jesus gives the Bible study of all Bible studies. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You never quite got there. You didn't, you didn't really understand what was happening. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Friends, my hope for you is that you begin to see this. What we have in in this collection of of words, in this collection of letters, in this collection of accounts that we know as scripture or that we know as the Bible, is that you begin to see it as so much more than just something you read a little bit of to check a box on your reading plan for your quiet time. That that you maybe put yourself in this place, and, and Luke doesn't tell us, we don't know exactly what Jesus unpacked for them and what he told them. Maybe he went all the way back to the creation story. When, when Adam and Eve stepped outside of God's best for them, Adam, who, who was meant to walk in the fullness of relationship with God, unbroken relationship with God, allowed himself to, to be convinced that God was withholding something from him, from him that there's something better. Don't, don't you want to know more? Don't you want to know the things that God knows? Don't you want to look at how beautiful, look at how tempting this fruit is. It's, it looks like it's tasty. Don't you want this? God's not going to let you have it. You should take it. And Adam does that. And, and Paul later will refer to Jesus as the new Adam or the perfect Adam because the first Adam broke covenant with God. But look what God does when he comes into the garden. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus, there at the very beginning, Genesis 3, verse 15, the answer to all of our problems, the solution for all of our sin. Would he suffer? Yes, but he would have the final say. He would crush the head of the serpent. He would crush the head of the enemy. Do we still feel the the work of the enemy in this world today? Yes, but no that he is a defeated foe who is just in the death throes and, and, and is, is, we're waiting for that moment when he realizes that he is dead and been defeated. Jesus, always there from the beginning. Or, 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 or what about Joseph? Joseph in Genesis, who was betrayed by his brothers, betrayed by his family, who was thrown into a pit, who was rescued out of that pit and did what? Chose to forgive those who put him in there in the first place. What does Jesus say as he's being crucified? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. The very ones who betrayed him, Jesus forgave and invited back into fellowship with himself, a perfect Joseph. Or what about Abraham and Isaac? Abraham, who it was impossible for his wife Sarah to have a son, and yet they're blessed with a son, Isaac. Through Abraham, God promises to Abraham, hey, I'm going to rescue the world, not just the Hebrew people, the world. This son I've given you, Abraham, I'm going to need you to do something. I'm going to need you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And as Abraham is doing it, so faithful. And yet I can't even begin to wrap my mind around what it would be like to take one of my children and be willing to do that. Abraham says, you know what? We're going to go because I believe that God is going to provide a sacrifice. God did provide a sacrifice. His name is Jesus. It's been there all along. What about the Exodus? The Passover lamb, the blood that was shed on the, that was put on the door of God's people so that death would pass over them. In scripture, Jesus is referred to the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of our world. Friends, to root your hope in Jesus is to root your hope in something that has been there from the very beginning and something that will be there until time ceases to exist, which is never, because he is the author of time. He is the sustainer of time. He is the one that makes it all possible, and he's the one that's going to return and make all things new. My question to 
you is what is your hope rooted in this morning? Because if it is anything other than the fullness of who Jesus is, the fullness of who Jesus is, there will always be disappointment and always be reason to be hopeless. But in Christ, in the fullness of who he is, we can say, no matter what comes, as hard as it may be, I believe that this is not all there is because my life is connected to one who has always been. And then in Jesus, we don't talk about hope in the past tense. We might talk about things that happened in the past, but we can say in that, God is using that to do something now that's going to mean something for my future. Hope is always forward-looking in the person of Christ. They allowed him to open the scriptures, and they listened. And then the most beautiful thing happens. They invite him to stay. Hey, linger with us. And Jesus does. He's always willing to linger. Hey, it's late. Come stay with us. And Jesus, the one who's invited, takes on the role of host, as he always does. And he breaks the bread. And he gives the bread. Broken. Given. And it's in that that their eyes are open. (laughs) And they realize he was there all along. Didn't we feel it when we were walking with him? Prince, maybe for you this morning, you're in this place where your eyes are being opened to the fact that he's been there all along. And it's in the reminder that he was broken and given for you that you, you awaken, awaken to that, to the hope that there is rooted in something that's eternal. And they didn't stay in that place. They went the seven miles back and told their friends, hope has been restored and now it's rooted in something that is unchanging. I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Maybe for you this is just an encouragement, a reminder. Maybe for you this is a challenge to the things in your life that you have rooted your hope in. And know that if it is not Jesus, there is grace that covers that. It is grace that allows us to feel that, that, that burden of conviction. It's grace that reveals to us the places that we have rooted our hope that that seek to to steal life from us. And it is grace that reminds us here on this Easter morning that whatever our present circumstances are, this is not all there is. And so as we wrestle with letting go of some of those things, as we wrestle with turning loose some of those things that we had placed our hope in and instead clinging to Jesus, I want to close with these words by Robert Benson from Between Dreaming and The Coming True. He says, I was in the hospital around Easter and the doctors gave me a pass to go to church on Easter morning. My sister came to pick me up and help me get there. Sitting in a pew that morning, barely two blocks from the hospital where I was told I might well have been dead instead of alive on this Easter morning, it came to me that the resurrection is a theological concept that may well be ignored unless one's death cannot be. It then follows that forgiveness is not much of a concept without something for which to forgive and be forgiven. Healing has no meaning in the absence of illness. Peace is no treasure at all to those who have known no war and no strife. 
Saying hello has no joy in it without the saying of goodbye. I am coming to believe that the thing God said just before let there be light was goodbye dark. And that Noah could not say hello to the rainbow without first having said goodbye to the world as it disappeared beneath the waters of the flood. And that something deep and mysterious about saying goodbye from the bottom of the pit made the hello that Joseph spoke to his father all those years later all the more wondrous. Goodbye, Egypt, turned out to be another way for the Israelites to say hello, Canaan, the fulfillment of God's promise. Goodbye, Jesus of Nazareth, whispers Mary through her tears at the foot of the cross on Friday afternoon. Is hello, Lord of the universe, to the one that she mistakes for a gardener on that first Easter morning. Maybe God this morning is inviting you to say goodbye to something, but know that in doing so, he is opening the door for you to say hello to something far greater. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Please stand and pray with me. Jesus, for all of the truths that you just spoke to us, for the fact that you are willing to meet us in our questions and our doubt and our, our fear and our wonderings and wanderings. For the fact that to root our hope in you is to root our hope in something that is eternal. As your word says, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who has come to untangle our hearts from those things that we should never have placed allegiance to. Thank you that you are the one who is capable of reordering our priorities in our lives. And we know that in whatever way you choose to do that, it is, it is wrapped up in, undergirded by, and because of the love that you have for us and your desire for us to experience life and life to the full. And I'm so thankful, Jesus, that on this resurrection morning, we get to mark that because there is an empty tomb that death did not have the final say, that whatever we are walking through does not have the final say, that in you, in you there is hope beyond today. In you there is hope beyond right now. I pray that you would give us the grace to receive it, and I pray that you would give us the conviction to share that with the world around us. We love you. Jesus, we pray these things in your powerful and holy and beautiful name. Amen.